if we haven't met, my name's Dominic. I'm one of the pastor elders here. And uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 5 today. So if you have a Bible or some kind of te- technology with a Bible on it, can you open up to Ephesians 5? While you're getting there, I'm going to give a brief update on uh, one of our churches, Reality Carpinteria. And the next several times I preach, I'm going to take the first minute or so to briefly update you all on uh, one of our nine reality churches. If you don't know, Reality Ventura is a part of nine, a nine church family of churches. And um, real quick, about six months ago, uh, Britt Merrick, who was the founder and lead pastor at Reality Carp, uh, retired from that position. And Reality Carpinteria was the first ever reality, if you don't know that, Reality Ventura was planted out of Reality Carp about 10 years ago. And um, obviously, a transition like that is, is huge. It was even more huge because they didn't really have a transition place uh, in, in, in place when it happened. And, and so in response, um, that's created some complications, you know. And as they look back, they're like, man, we <laughs> wish we would have planned a little bit better. But they are recalibrating now and putting together a team in order to help lead uh, the church in, in a transition in this next season. And we're praying as a church how we can be involved and help with that. Um, this is a little note from Tyler, who's one of the elders at Reality Carp. He said, after 16 years, the church founder retiring is a big deal. There's a ton of change, and with change comes difficulty. While difficult, we believe God is with us and is accomplishing his good plan. This is how we've been praying and would love for you to pray for us. Number one, for unity. Number two, renewal. And number three, directed steps. Let's go ahead and pray together. Lord, we love our brothers and sisters in Carpinteria. They are your people. They are our family. And so we want to bring them to you now, Lord. We want to bring the elders and the staff, all the lay leaders, the church to you. And we ask that um, you would fill every part of what they're going through right now. There are many different seasons in life and some are harder than others. We ask that in this season, they would know your nearness and that you would be an ever-present help in their time of need. We pray for unity among them, that there would be no division, that the voice of the accuser would be shut up, that people would use their words to bless and encourage and build up one another, not tear down and place doubt and division We pray that you would renew them. Uh, I believe that you want to do a new thing at Reality Carp, and it's going to be good, but new is hard. And new wine requires new wineskins, and that's hard. So we ask that you give them great wisdom into knowing what those new wineskins look like. And we pray like they asked that you would direct their steps. They would be full of your spirit and in tune with your spirit. You would show them what is next and how to get there. And ultimately, that all of this would lead to mission, like we just heard about on that video. And we thank you for your word today. It is living. It's active. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. We ask that you would divide it up into a couple hundred different pieces and speak it into our lives and hearts today. We ask that you would anoint my lips to speak forth only that which is in accordance with your purpose for your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, well, if you were here last week, uh, you know that Brian taught Ephesians 5, verses 3 and 5, and intentionally left out verse 4 so that we could look at it today. So that's what we're going to do. But just for a little context, we'll read that whole thing, uh, 3 through 5 of Ephesians chapter 5. It says, Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. You can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes, thankfulness, words, right? We live in an age of diminishing words, where you can tweet or post something without even really thinking about it and aren't really held responsible for it. In fact, a few hours later or a few days later, you could say, no, nah, nah, I was just kidding. Right? Talk is cheap in, in our culture. Uh, we say stuff like, hey, dude, don't tell me, show me. And that's real. That's right. Uh, in fact, we have this saying, just go ahead and repeat it for me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but but words will never hurt me. Possibly one of the least true statements in the entire universe, right? There are people in this room right now, some of you have been defined by other people's words spoken to you or over you for better or worse. Obscene stories, he says, foolish talk, coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Words. And these, this verse here, it ties into a much broader picture in scripture regarding words, namely that what comes out of our mouths actually has a profound impact on our lives and on the lives of the people around us. But because talk is cheap, we devalue the power and the influence of words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but nah, words can't change me though. Oh, you didn't really mean that. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but that's not going to make or break me what you're saying, right? We devalue the power of words. But a quick Google search on power of words, and you'll quickly see that they have much more effect on us than uh, we often realize. In In one article from Psyche Central, Therese Borchard writes this. According to Andrew Newberg, MD, and Mark Robert Waldman, Words can literally change your brain. In their book, Words Can Change Your Brain, they write, a single word has the power to influence the expression of genes that regulate physical and emotional stress. Positive words can alter the expression of genes, strengthening areas in your frontal lobes. They propel the motivational centers of the brain into action. Conversely, Hostile language can disrupt specific genes that play a key part in the production of neurochemicals that protect us from stress. Neuroscience. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can change my brain. Right? And I love it when science finally catches up to speed with what the Bible's been saying for thousands of years. Namely, that words have both life-giving and life deteriorating power. Like all things, there was an original design for the purpose that words would play in our lives and in the world. God had an original plan for that. But when sin entered, that design was hijacked and distorted. 
However, when God redeems people, he redeems us back to our original purpose. And with that, he redeems stuff like words back to their original intent. That is always God's goal. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, man, they have power. And here's how I want to begin this morning is by looking at a biblical history of words so that we might understand God's intention for words and how they have been hijacked and distorted. Distorted. <clears throat> it all starts in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, we see that God uses words to create and bless his children. Right there, Genesis 1, 1 through 3, listen to this. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So there's this formless, uh, empty darkness. That's how some of your lives feel right now, right? Well, God is wanting to speak in that. Listen, God speaks into that. It says in verse three of Genesis one, God said, let there be light. Boom, there was light. Light appeared. And then God spoke and said, let this go there and this go there and the sky appeared. And then he said, there was water everywhere, right? And there was like this firmament of water. And he said, let it separate. So there was, there was the sky, oh, I'm sorry, the seas and the land. And then he was like, let the earth produce food and vegetation appeared. And then he was like, let the sea be full of, of animals in the sea and, and fish and all kinds of sea creatures were appeared. And then let the land be full of, of creatures. And so creatures appeared. And then let there, let there be a big light and a small light and the sun and the moon appeared and the stars appeared. God spoke. And there it was. And then God spoke. And humanity came into existence. And then God spoke, and in verse 28 of Genesis 1, it says that he blessed humanity with his words. And then Adam, the first human being, the first thing we hear him say is actually powerful and beautiful. He's all alone, right? He doesn't have a wife. He's the only human being. God takes a rib out of his side, and he makes a woman. And it says there in Genesis chapter 2, he says, alas! In other words, finally, he's looking at Eve and he's like, huh, finally, yeah, look, you are, you're bone in my bones, like you're, you're flesh in my flesh. This is, this is Tom, Tom Cruise in uh, whatever that Jerry Maguire movie where he's like, you complete me, you complete me. And he speaks these words and if anybody's ever spoken to you that way, you know, it generates life in you, right? And he's he there partnering with the intention of God and Adam uses words to bless and celebrate another human being. God's original intent for words for a moment was being partnered with by humanity. But it wasn't long until the serpent appeared and uses words uses words to deceive and to place doubt about God's goodness and to tempt. And with words, he says, Eve, nah, God's not really good, right? He's not out for your good. Did God really say that? Nah, God wants all the glory and the knowledge for himself. That's why he said that. He starts placing doubt with words and sin enters the world and God's intent for words is hijacked in that moment and distorted. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, we see that humanity uses words to deceive, to tear down and to create false gods. Think about places like Genesis chapter nine, where the people begin to use words to uh, work together to try to create their own way to God. 
And then God has to come in and put in a language barrier to confuse their language so they can stop with their attempts to get to him. Meaning God will sometimes take away people's ability to understand words when they're not being used in conjunction with his purpose for them. But it wasn't all bad. Humanity also, in the Old Testament, uses words to worship. We think about Moses in Exodus 15. The dude writes the first ever congregational worship song with words. And we see there, man, that's God's intent for worship. When we worship, it reminds us who God is and who we are. And when we are reminded of who God is and who we are, life is nurtured in us. And God's intention is always for life. And then people like Joshua and and uh, the prophets, they're using words to spur each other on and to stir up faith and trust and worship toward God all throughout the Old Testament. And so there is this ongoing contrast all throughout the Old Testament of God's original intent for words and then humanity uh, not really and sometimes participating in that intent. And then the New Testament comes and uh, John The Apostle John says in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus would say later in Luke 6 that from the abundance of your heart, your mouth speaks, and so from the abundance of the Father's heart, Jesus comes forth, and the Word becomes flesh Jesus is God translated for us to understand who he is. You ever wonder what the Father's like? Look at Jesus. And then all throughout the Gospels, Jesus uses words to restore people. I mean, he could have just walked by people and been like, <laughs> and healed them like that, right? He didn't. He like speaks to him. Remember Lazarus is the first one that comes to my mind. Remember Lazarus in the tomb? He didn't walk in. He says, Lazarus, words, come forth. He uses words, and then Jesus teaches his followers to use words all throughout the Gospels. I think it's fascinating that in places like Mark 11, that Jesus says, you will be able to speak to this mountain and say, move from here to there, and it'll be moved from here to there. He doesn't say, you'll be able to touch this mountain. He doesn't say, you'll be able to think in your brain about this mountain. Whoa, sorry. He says, you'll be able to speak to this mountain. And then even our salvation requires a verbal profession of faith. Words. If you confess with your mouth, Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. James summarizes all of this as he expresses the life-altering nature of words in James chapter 3. Uh, women who are in the women's Bible study, you guys just study this. So I'm just saying, if you're here today, God's trying to speak to you. Okay, that's all I'm saying. Because I didn't, I didn't do this. This is just our text today is about words. James chapter 3. James says this. The tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body it can set your whole life on fire. For it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. 
It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No. And you can't draw fresh water from a salty spring. Too bad James couldn't just say it like it was. <laughs> Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can ruin my life. That's what he's saying. Sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can ruin your life. That's what he's saying. Our words carry with them profound influence. And in our passage today, Paul specifically points out words containing obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, which are the language associated with the surrounding verses mentioning sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes are the language associated with them, and they refer to a dirty mind that expresses itself in vulgar conversation. And Paul says, this kind of talk is not for you, Christian. When we view it in light of all of Ephesians, it's not just a command to do better or act a certain way. He's saying, hey, children of God, don't act like this. It's like a father saying to his children, that's not what we do in this house. That's not what we do in this house. In fact, Paul is making a point here that the sexual immorality, impurity, and greed of verses 3 and 5 are so far from anything a Christian should be involved in that you shouldn't even be talking about that kind of stuff in this way. Obscene stories, foolish talk, coarse jokes. This is not what words were intended to be used for. But with only a quick glance at this, it appears that that's all Paul is saying, right? And that, that's how we like to read it with like our legalistic tendencies. We're like, okay, all right, okay, don't, don't say dirty jokes, okay? Don't, don't be talking about people in an improper way. Okay, PG language, probably shouldn't curse. Okay, got it. Okay, check the box. But Paul's actually saying quite a bit more than that. It's actually a lot bigger than that because look at the contrast in our verse. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. Instead, here's the contrast, let there be thankfulness to God. Let there be, this is another way to use your words, thankfulness to God. Paul is talking about using our words to worship. This is what we were created for, was loving relationship with God. This is what I believe Adam and Eve had in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 when it says they walked with God in the cool of the day, no doubt using their words that he had given them to communicate with him and to worship him. And so Paul confirms this here and says, says instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Let there be thankfulness to God. Instead, use your words to worship which means that we can either speak words that worship or words that wreck. You got James setting stuff on fire, that's words that wreck. You got Paul saying instead thankfulness, that's words that worship. The point of this verse is that ultimately our words can either be used to participate in and encourage the worship of God or participate in and encourage the worship of idols. Y'all, dude, hold on, Dom. That's like a really big statement, bro. Idols, like I just talk trash sometimes. I just like talk about, you know, like 
sexual things sometimes. I just gossip a little bit. (laughs) I'm not worshiping idols. This isn't idolatry. Or is it? Look at the context of the verse. Let me read it with the verses or the verses surrounding it. Let me read verses 3 and 5. The verse comes before and after it. That's what Brian taught last week. I'll read it from the NIV. But among you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, listen, such a person is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. As Brian so clearly pointed out last week, when we have a lifestyle of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed, these things become functional gods in our lives, idols. They become, they start to function as the thing that gives us satisfaction. They start to function like God is supposed to function. They function uh, to, as the thing that brings us pleasure, as the thing that satisfies us, brings us stability. They become our functional saviors, i.e. idols. And when we use words to speak of such things, we actually encourage the participating and worship of such things, which is why Paul calls it idolatry. These words foster a culture of disconnection, disunity, and sin. They are words that wreck. And then there are words that worship, but rather... Let there be thankfulness to God. Rather, use your words to worship. So there are words that encourage the gratification of the flesh that are selfish in nature and foster death and idolatry. But there are also words that instead of gratifying the flesh, they encourage gratitude toward God and actually foster life and worship. Let me give you a silly example. I love freshly fried tiger tail donuts from Rolling Pin Donut on Las Postas in Camarillo. Specifically. At about 9.40 at night, which is when they're fresh. And because I love such things, Jesus said, Luke 6.45, Out of the abundance of my heart, my mouth speaks. And so you will often hear me speaking of such things. It just happened last week. Midnight, I went and got some dudes donuts because I was talking about them. I could see their mouths were watering. I'll be like, all right, I'll be right back. And I went and got donuts. I came back. Because I love such things, they come out of my mouth. It comes out of my mouth. From the abundance of my heart, my mouth speaks. And here's what happens. I stir up your affections for tiger tails. When I speak about such things, confection, affections. And without trying to, I actually encourage the participation in eating of such things. I'm not proud of it, but this is what happens. And we all do this with stuff that we love. We all do. Somebody text me after last service was like, hey, dude, we're going to get donuts right now. (laughs) Listen, we all do this stuff. We all do this. Words have the power to stir up our affections for whatever we speak about. It's true. So when our speech is filled with talk about our desire for more money or more possessions 
or when our speech is, is filled with talking about how hot that girl is when she's, she's not my wife. When our speech is filled with the idea that our stability is directly related to how much money we have in the bank and the roof over our head. We may not even realize it, but when we talk about such things, we are actually stirring up people's affections for idols and encouraging the exaltation and worship of them. We call them functional saviors because you don't actually have a, a gold god looks like a dollar sign on your dresser that you bow down to every day. No, no, no. It just functions like a God in your life. And so we call it a functional savior. On the other hand, when our speech is filled with talk about how much money we can give away, how generous we can be with the possessions God has given us because he has been generous to us. Or when our speech is filled with words talking about how, how satisfying God actually is and more satisfying than any possession that this world could ever offer. When we start using our words to talk about the fact that our stability is not based on money in the bank account and it's not based on a roof over my head because Jesus is my money in my bank account. Jesus is the roof over my head. Jesus is my stability. Jesus is my great, exceedingly great reward and portion. Jesus is my satisfaction. He is my security. When we start speaking our words about these things, we don't even mean to. But what we are doing is we are stirring up affections for Jesus. And we are actually encouraging the exaltation and worship of him. That's right. Yeah, you can clap for that. Come on. Why are you clapping? You know what I did? I just stirred up your affections for Jesus. With words. For 30 seconds. Some of you who are struggling financially right now just went like this. Yeah, I can trust God. You were reminded of God's faithful character right now. Worship just started welling up in some of your hearts. I just heard somebody say, Jesus. How'd I do that? Words. Isn't it the job of the preacher to stir up our affections for Jesus? I didn't even say anything that profound, man. And with my words, I just dethroned false gods and enthroned Jesus. Because words have the power to dethrone false gods and enthrone Jesus. I didn't say anything profound. All I did was spoke truth and partnered with God's intentions for how we ought to use words. The bigger idea of what Paul is saying here and what James said in James 3 and what we see all throughout scripture is that our words have power. Our words have power to enrich life or deteriorate life. Our words have power to impart hope or create discouragement. Do you realize that somebody who was not previously discouraged, you could speak a word to them and create discouragement in them. Our words have the power to foster unity or fuel dissension. Dude, I'm just, I'm not gossiping. I'm just like talking about them in a way that's not very flattering. That's called fostering unity instead of fueling or fueling dissension. That's what that's called. Our words have the power to tear down 
or to build up. Proverbs 15, 4 says, gentle words bring life and health. That's what the Bible says. Gentle words bring life. A deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Proverbs 11, evil words destroy your friend's life. That's the Bible. Our words have the power to compete or complete, right? We can use words to, for competition's sake, or how many of you know that you've been there, you've been wondering, like, I think this is what God wants to do, and somebody comes along and speaks something, and it completes what God was trying to do in your life. That's what words have the power to do. Listen, words have the power to start fires or start revivals. Come on, listen to me. Fires that destroy communities start with words. Divisive, dissension kind of destructive words. But revivals that restore communities start with words. Let me say it again. Fires that destroy communities start with words. But revivals that restore communities start with words. Remember what James said? He said your words are like a spark in the middle of a forest. So here's my question, church. Do you want to spark gossip or do you want to spark worship? Because your words are a spark. Do you want to spark division or you want to spark decisions? I want to spark decisions for Jesus. That's how I want to use my words. Do you want to spark legalism that kills or liberation that heals? This is what our words have the power to do. The point is, words carry with them life-generating and life-deteriorating power. Ultimately, we can either use our words to partner with the heart of God or with the voice of the accuser. Revelation 12 says that uh, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. Stands before God day and night accusing us. God names Satan according to the words he uses and how he uses them. That's how powerful words are. And when we choose not to believe the best about someone and then talk about it through gossip, slander, when we choose to use our words in a way that tears down instead of builds up, when we choose to encourage division instead of unity, with our words, when we choose to use words that encourage legalism and religion instead of freedom and relationship, then our words effectively become partners with the accuser of the brethren, Satan himself. Let me say it again. Ultimately, our words can either partner with the heart of God or partner with the voice of the accuser. life-generating or life-deteriorating power. That means with your friends, with your loved ones, your family, your coworker, your classmates, your neighbor, you have the opportunity to speak words that either foster a spiritual culture of liberty leading to life or a carnal culture of idolatry leading to destruction. I believe that the king is on the move, church. Listen, 
I thought I was the only one talking about this because I, I haven't been on social media for a year. I don't really listen to other preachers. But apparently, people all around the world are talking about this same thing. Like, Jesus is moving. Believe he's wanting to do something, maybe starting in 2020. I don't know if you heard about this thing. But 20 years ago, this dude from International House of Prayer, he started speaking about the Super Bowl. He said, 20 years ago, he said, the year that the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, because they hadn't won in 50 years, God's going to raise up chiefs in his church, and they're going to lead the church and bring many to Jesus. Okay, I don't know if you saw this. It was all over social media before the Super Bowl. I've never prayed for a team to win the Super Bowl in my life, but I was praying, right? Because I'm just saying, if that's real, yes, Lord, I'm in, right? I believe God's wanting to do something. I think he's wanting to do something in California that affects this country and the world. And listen, I think that some of it actually starts right here. That means it starts right there. Just look at your neighbor and say, that's you. You didn't do it over here. Everybody look at their neighbor and say, that's you. Okay, just look at me. Say, Dom. Like you mean it. Say, Dom. That's you. Look at me. Say, Dom. That's me. Yes, it is. Listen, you know how... Uh, you know how people hear about Jesus? You. Jesus saves, but you know how they hear about the Savior? That's you. That's you. I love St. Francis of Assisi, and he, you know, he said this powerful thing. He said, preach the gospel always, use words when necessary. That's real. That's, that's true. We got to live the gospel, not just say it. If you just say it, anything, you're just a hypocrite. You're an actor is what Jesus called the Pharisees. Our words have to be backed by our convictions. Otherwise, you are a hypocrite. So we can't just speak words, but we also can't just live the gospel. We got to talk it. Sayings like this, uh, preach the gospel, use words when necessary, can become an excuse for us to actually never talk about Jesus. Because we're like, and eh, you know what? If I'm just polite enough and compassionate enough, compassionate enough, eventually that person is just going to have some supernatural revelation of Jesus. They're going to be sleeping one day and they're going to be like, oh my God, they keep getting me coffee because of Jesus. <laughs> That's what we're all hoping, right? <laughs> That's not going to happen. No, that doesn't happen. Here's the newsflash. You are their revelation of Jesus. Your words being spoke are what reveals Jesus to them. Romans 10 says it very simply, He's talking about your worker. But how can, fill in their name, Lisa, Jeremy, Joseph, how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? But how can they believe in him unless they have heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? You can't just give someone clean water without pointing them to the living water. Because clean water will only quench their thirst temporarily. The living water, Jesus himself, quenches their thirst eternally. But how will they ever know who the living water is unless you tell them who he is? Your mercy and kindness are good. The world needs it. But what gives your mercy and kindness authority is the fact that it points to the mercy and kindness of God. And how will anyone ever know that your mercy and kindness point to the mercy and kindness of God unless you tell them with your words? I think that God wants to save a lot of people. 
I think he wants to save your neighbor and your brother and your sister and your kids and your parents and your coworker and your classmates. I think God wants to do it. And if you were living in the Middle East where there was no Christians, then yeah, you could expect God to show up in somebody's dream. And that happens all the time in the Middle East. Some Muslim person's asleep and Jesus shows up. And he's like, hey, I'm Jesus. I'm the son of God. Go find that person at such and such address and they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you about me. Happens all the time. That's not going to happen with your neighbor. You want to know why? Because that's why you're there. There's no Christians next door to that person in the Middle East. You are next door. You are next door. That's why you are there. And for some crazy reason throughout history, God has chosen to partner with his people and to work with his people, not independent of them, which means that you are the way people hear the good news. You are the preacher. I'm not the preacher, though. You're the preacher. No, I'm not. Listen, I don't live next to your neighbor. I don't work at your work. And you didn't bring them to church, so I can't preach to them. That's your job. You live next to them. You work with them. You go to school with them. You're in family with them because God wants to use your, but like, dude, I don't, I'm not. Yes, you are. You are the preacher. You are the PR little E thing, chur, proclaimer of good news. That's you. That's you, church. You are the preacher. It's a command. Jesus said in Mark 16, 15, go into all creation and preach the gospel. Proclaim the good news of Jesus to every living creature. It's a command. And you have been given authority and ability to do it. Nah, bro. Nah, you don't know me, dude. I do not have authority. Jesus said in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me, therefore you go. You have the authority. I, I get it. Like, Dom, you don't know me. You don't know me. We are ambassadors for Christ. It's stupid. But it's God's plan. It always has been. But I don't have the ability, dude. Like, I can barely talk. I mess up all the time. I'm a failure. I'm young. I'm too young, Dom. Don't tell me that. I don't care about your credentials. Don't you remember King David? He was an adulterer and a murderer. And when he was young, a little kid, he slayed the giant. Come on. Don't you remember Paul the Apostle? He used to kill Christians. John the Apostle, he was always trying to be better. How about Moses? He couldn't talk. And God used him to go speak to the people. He's like, you're going to be my mouthpiece? And Moses is like, okay. How about Rahab? She was a prostitute. How about Mary, the sister of Lazarus, who was dead? She wouldn't even come out to see Jesus. She was so disappointed in him when Jesus showed up to her brother's funeral. And Jesus would say later of her, this act that this woman Mary has done, everywhere the gospel is preached, everybody's going to be talking about her. And her sister Martha was a workaholic. How about Peter? How about Peter always putting his foot in his mouth? The night Jesus was crucified, what did he use his words for? To deny Jesus three times. I don't know that man, he said. I don't know that man. The third time, I swear to God, I don't know him. That's what the Bible actually says. 52 days later, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And when he opened his mouth, he preached the gospel and started a revolution that has changed the face of the universe. 
that's what happened with his words. Don't tell me about your credentials. Don't tell me about your credentials. You don't need credentials to preach the gospel when you've got the Holy Spirit. Because of the Spirit in you, your words have authority and life-generating power. And today, you're going to speak 7,000 of them. My question is, how are you going to use them? If God gave you $7,000 and said, I want you to use every single one to invest it in my kingdom, okay? How would you invest those dollars? You've got 7,000 words. How will you invest them in his kingdom today? God spoke us into existence and then spoke to us through Jesus. Zephaniah 3 says that he sings over us with his mouth, with his words. So let us partner with that life-generating power that comes out of God's mouth and every word that comes out of our mouths. You don't need to speak eloquently. You don't need to speak loud. You just need to speak truth. And you need to have conviction. We've all heard people who speak eloquently and I'm like, I don't even believe you do. And we've heard people stumble over their words, but we believe it and we're like, oh my. That's all you need. And as we do that, we will encourage our hearts toward praise and encourage other people's hearts toward praise. Amen? So listen, if, if you desire for your words to be used in the same way that God intended them to be, which is creating life and spurring on worship of Jesus, I'm gonna ask that you would stand with me right now. If not, if you're like, yo, dude, I like talking trash, sit down, it's all good. I'm not here to judge you, that's God's job. But if you want your words to be used to bring life to people and spur on the exaltation of Jesus, then stand up with me, I'm gonna pray for you. Put your hands out in front of you as if you were receiving something from heaven. It's a very simple prayer. All, I'm, all we're going to do is we're going to say it out loud. We're basically just going to say, God, I can't do this. <laughs> but through you, I can. I am weak, but you are strong. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit. May your life well up in me, in my heart, so that it comes out of my mouth. Church, we're going to worship right now through song. If there was ever a moment for you to open your mouth and sing, this would be it. Okay? I don't care if you don't sing good. This is the moment for you to open your mouth and sing. The prayer team will be on the right and the left. They will pray for you about anything you need. The communion elements are here for Christians to remember that Jesus became flesh, gave his life, rose from the dead for us. And the carpets are here as a way for us to respond but let our affections, even this first song right now that we're going to sing, let the word stir up affections in our heart toward Jesus. Let's worship now. <laughs>